This is the Bible teaching from the Apostolic Church, All Nations Centre in Kennington, London. Reaching the community in practical and caring ways. Here now is a timeless Word of God. Who is on the Lord's side? I am on the Lord's side as well. We bring you greetings from the state of Michigan in the United States. And uh, as we are serving... We remember you, our friends, and we've been here maybe seven years ago. I think this is the third time that we've been with you, and uh, it's a joy to be with you. And we have a special love in our heart for Apostle Abraham and Margaret, who are faithful leaders in this house, and uh, Apostle Abraham and uh, Emmanuel and Helen have been with us in the United States as well in our home and ministering among some of our churches there. And so we are uh, delighted and, and love you from afar every time we are with you. It's a, it's a great joy. So we do want to greet those of you who are with us online, and I do believe the Lord has a word for the church today. And I understand you've been baptized in grace. You have been soaking in God's grace. You've been learning about God's grace. And you know, it's an amazing thing when God's grace not only impacts you, but then works through you. Because there's a left hand and a right hand to God's grace. God's grace is unmerited favor, but then it's also divine enablement. Can I hear an amen? Amen. God's grace is something you get that you don't deserve, but it's also a strength that works through your life. Have you ever heard someone use the expression, I need God's grace to get through this day? Or I need God's grace to get through this trial? What are you saying? You're saying, I need the supernatural stuff of heaven to come to me and give me strength to walk through what is before me. So I would like to speak to you about deliberate training for desperate times. Deliberate training for desperate times. Do you know in the United States, and I'm sure here in the UK, you have something similar to the Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs are the highest trained military uh, experts. They're a, they're a subgroup of, of the SEALs, and they go through tremendous, rigorous physical, emotional, mental training. All the while, while they're going through the training, there's a silver bell that is there in their training camp. And if you feel like you've come to the end of yourself, and you don't want to go through the training anymore, you bring yourself to the silver bell and you ring it and you are no longer part of the Navy SEALs special training unit. Now you can be part of the the Navy and continue to serve, but you are no longer in that elite trained force. Next slide. You'll see some of the pictures of these, these gentlemen training. I bet you could do that. No problem. Let's go home and do that this afternoon. Next slide. Next slide. Uh, yes, this, this one would get me, being uh, tied hand and foot and thrown into a deep pool, 
holding your breath. Next slide. This is all part of their training. Now this guy is not in training. I think somewhere along the line, this guy rang the silver bell and is no longer a Navy SEAL. Next slide. This guy is not in training either. Next slide. And this guy certainly is not in training either. Next slide. This is some of the training that the Navy SEALs go through. They learn how to work as a team. They learn how to be strong together. Next slide. And uh, you see there that they have to go through grueling things, but the bell is always in front of them. If they ring the bell, they opt out. My message to you, friend, is don't ring the bell. Come on, these are desperate times. And the Lord is, because these are desperate times, the Lord is leading his people into deliberate training. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Next slide. I'd like to share with you three environments. And you might say, well, I know these are desperate times for Israel. I know that there are wars and rumors of wars. There are terrible things happening. You know, many Christian young people, both in the UK and in the USA, are deconstructing their faith. The faith that they were raised in, as a matter of fact, 66% of our church-raised young people leave their faith by the time they're entering their second year of college. That statistic is unacceptable. Two-thirds of our young people are deconstructing. And you know, this word deconstructing is, is, I know what I've been taught, I know what my parents believe, I know what my pastor has taught me, but I'm going to take it apart It's like taking apart Legos and arrive at a new construction of my own liking informed by the secular society around me. We live in desperate times. A political spirit has infected and divided the body of Christ, causing divisions. And we've all come through COVID times. Boy, COVID was difficult You know, we had disagreements even among church people about vaxxing and masking and social distancing and then voting. And boy, in the United States, that became a very hot topic. The biblical church finds itself increasingly at odds with the secularization of our culture. 38% of pastors have seriously considered leaving the full-time ministry this last year. The top three reasons that they give for wanting to leave the ministry, the immense stress of the job, number two, feeling lonely and isolated, and number three, current political divisions. In this nation and in the United States, Christians are spurned for asserting that the Bible is still God's will for life and doctrine. Now we can say that in church, and I get an amen. The Bible is our rule for life and practice. But if you say this outside of these walls, you are derided and you're spurned. Friends, we're called to be salt and light, and I believe that because these times are desperate, the Lord is bringing us into deliberate training. 
Jesus had the multitudes who followed him. Then among them, he had the 70 that he sent out, or the 73. And then he had, of course, the 12. And then among the 12, he had the three that were closest to him, and their names were Peter, James, and John. You're all so well taught. You're all so well taught. Peter, James, and John were taken by Jesus into three unique training experiences. Jesus did not do this accidentally, but as we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus left the other nine disciples and he said, Peter, James, and John, you come here and follow me into these unique training environments. And there was something about those experiences that marked those three men. And I would like to say that those were unique training experiences because Peter, James, and John were to go on to be some very unique disciples among the 12. And here's my challenge to us. I want you to be a Navy SEAL. I want you to enter into the special training of the Lord for these days that we're living in. Do you know, I don't think this is just for an elite few because in the body of Christ, it is said of the end time church, the bride has made herself ready. Do you know when Christ returns, he's not coming for a bride that is disheveled and divided. He's coming for a bride without spot or wrinkle. And I believe we're all supposed to enter into this unique training. So let's visit Peter, James, and John as Jesus brings them into these three training scenarios. The first environment that we see is training for power. Everyone say training for power. This is the raising of Jairus' daughter And I'm reading from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, and then 35 through 43. The raising of Jairus' daughter is an amazing story. Starting at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was still by the lake. And one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus... Now notice, this was a Jewish leader. And most Jewish leaders had problems with Jesus' message of the gospel. They were so stuck in their own tradition of the law, they couldn't receive the new covenant because they were blinded by the constraints of the old covenant. But here, this synagogue ruler comes to Jesus, Jairus. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some of the people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Do not be afraid, just believe. 
He did not let anyone follow him except who? Peter, James, and John. No one else. This is a special training. Peter, James, and John, you come with me into the house of Jairus because inside of these doors is a dead baby girl, is a dead young girl that we are going to raise up by the power of God. Peter, James, and John, I want your eyes. I want you to come, and I want you to believe with me. You are the only ones who will come. Verse 38, when they came into the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with the people crying and wailing loudly. When he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But, when, but they laughed at him, and he put them all out. By the way, if you laugh at Jesus, you will be put out. <laughs> Just a side note, don't ever laugh at Jesus, because when Jesus is on the move, he's, there's purpose behind what he's doing. Peter, James, and John were in, in tow. They were following him, and he put them all out. And he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him. And they went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. And he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This training enforces the fact that the power of Jesus gives life in places where we see nothing but death. Some of you have experienced death. You've experienced what seems to, in the natural, be Nothing but hopelessness and loss. But let me tell you, when you allow Jesus to step in to that place, you will see the divine manifestation of power. This was a special training for power. Why? It gives us hope and faith when things look impossible. Peter, James, and John left that experience knowing that Jesus raised the dead. That gave them hope. That gave them faith. And I believe that the raising of Jairus' daughter is a parabolic picture of our own born-again experience. Do you remember when Jesus came to you when you were dead in your sin and said, little child, I say to you, arise from sin and come and follow me. Live by the Spirit of God. You know, even those who are far from faith right now, the Lord steps into their room and says, come forth and get up. Because we serve a God who raises the dead. Amen? Amen. When Jesus is in the room, friend, anything can happen. Have you ever experienced a supernatural physical healing? It's a beautiful thing. As a matter of fact, raise your hand if you've ever been touched in your physical body by the power of Jesus. Some of us have. Many of us have. Don't be shy. Have you ever been healed of something small or large? 
Many of us have. What's so beautiful about when God's power enters our physical body is that it's so intimate to us and it's so personal, isn't it? Because we're used to living in this body 24-7. And we understand that God's power is not just some far-off reality. It's not just the power that raised Christ from the dead, but that power in those moments we realize now lives in us. And because the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, it gives, it quickens and gives life to our mortal bodies. It's an amazing thing when we're healed. But this is what I know. This is our lesson from following Jesus into Jairus' house. Jesus will take you to the home of human hopelessness. Next slide. To show you his compassionate power. Go to this slide that says this. Jesus will take you to the home of human hopelessness to show you his compassionate power. Do you see that? This is evidence that there is a unique training for Peter, James, and John. And you know, whenever God's power moves, it's it's marked with compassion. Don't you love the fact that this young girl was 12 years old and Jesus raises her up? What a story she lived with for the rest of her life. Do you know it says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then look at what it says in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but what? Denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. It's a description of today. Wickedness running rampant and the religious having a form of godliness without power. Friends, we're called to much more, aren't we? Am I in the right church this morning? Is this a spirit-filled church? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit has imbued the body of Christ with his power? I thought I was in the right church. Let us go into the house of Jairus because there we will receive special training and we will understand that our God is a God of power. There's another unique experience Peter, James, and John had and that is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you'll remember that they were the only three that Jesus invited up to that mount. And this is training for perspective. Everyone say training for perspective. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him these three, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white 
as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. What an amazing story. The Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus begins shining. The glory that was always in him was unveiled and he begins to shine like the noonday sun and Peter, James, and John saw it. And Peter, being quick to speak, of course, says, he begins talking. And he says, "Uh, Lord, it's great. I've got a great idea. Let us put up three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Moses representing the greatest of the law. Elijah representing the greatest of the prophets. And the other gospel account said that Moses and Elijah were talking to him about something very specific, about his soon departure. And you know, we're much like Peter sometimes. We lose perspective. And the Lord has to come and speak from heaven to help us regain perspective. And you know, when when we enter the presence of God like that, a lot of times we go to our default. See, Peter was just going to his Jewish default. Think about it. The Jewish default when the glory comes down is to build a tabernacle. We all know that God dwelt between the wings of the cherubim. Moses, build a tabernacle so that I can be with you. And Solomon built a temple and God's presence filled it. Peter was being very Jewish in his response. He said, let's build three tabernacles right here. What does that mean? That means that you and I also have a default. Do you know Pentecostals have a default when the glory comes down? We act a certain way. We say certain things. Some of us run and dance and wave a hanky. Baptists... I was raised Baptist. We had, a, we had a different form when the glory of God came down. The altars were opened and you came forward and joined the church. All sorts of religious Christian tradition is brought to bear when God visits us. And we usually go to our preference. But I would like to say that God breaks in with his own divine perspective and said, Peter, it's not my intention for you to get active. It's my intention for you to keep your eyes on Jesus. Come on. Someone needs to hear this today. It's about you closing your mouth, Peter, 
And he says, this is my son. It's a very similar statement that was spoken from God out of heaven when Jesus was baptized, isn't it? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Peter, listen to him. And you will regain perspective. And this is the divine perspective. This is not just some earthly rabbi you're following. This is the unique son of God who embraces all of the law of Moses and all of the prophets of Elijah and is is the unique son of God who is soon going to go to Calvary's cross. One of the things that Jesus is doing in the church is he's getting us he's getting us refocused. The church needs to be refocused. It's not on the social upheavals or moral decline, wars and rumors of wars. It's not on political opinions. But it's on Jesus. Have you ever been taking a road trip and there was a sign on the side of the road that says scenic overlook? And you could pull off on the side of the road and you're likely on a high mountain overlook area. And if you get out of the car, you can look around and you can see the vast road. And you, if you look that way, you can see the road you have traveled. And if you look that way, you can see the road you will travel. And this is called perspective. When you're driving down the road, you just see all the trees going by and the other cars and all of that. And you can lose perspective. And the children are in the back seat saying, are we there yet? (laughs) Mom, are we there yet? Dad, are we there yet? Because they've lost perspective. But when you're on the scenic overlook, you can say, oh, that's where I've come from. That's where I'm going. And Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the mountaintop to help them see a broader kingdom perspective. What a revelation. What if you were one of the three on Mount of Transfiguration? Friend, it would mark your life forever. You would go down the mountain, start your own ministry, the Shining Jesus ministry, and you would buy a tent and you would travel the countryside talking about your experience on the mountain. But Jesus said, I will not allow you to even speak or tell anyone about what you've just experienced. What a discipline. But it was years later until he says, you can talk about this only after Jesus. I've been raised from the dead. And Peter later in his epistles writes, we were eyewitnesses for we saw his glory on the mountain. We are not following fables or fairy tales but let me tell you when we went to the mountain we saw with a true perspective hey friends God's church in this day needs a kingdom perspective it it goes beyond the opinions of man and it jars us from earthly thinking to a broader kingdom perspective friends we need training for power. We need training for divine perspective in our lives. Like Peter, we can often miss the point of what God is really doing. 
Jesus is giving us deliberate training for desperate times. The church must keep the main thing the main thing. And this is what we learned, the the application slide there. Next, please. Jesus will take you to the mountain of revelation to show you the glory of his supremacy over all things. And isn't this beautiful? That we can stand and see the shining Jesus, not just the carpenter that comes out of Nazareth, not just the great teacher, but Jesus takes us to this mountain where we see things. And let me just throw a gold nugget on you. For every mountain of revelation, there follows a valley of application. Oh, that was so good, I'm going to say it again. For every mountain of revelation, there follows a valley of application where you walk down the mountain and you walk out through the difficulties. And I believe that God graciously shows us those mountaintop vistas in in, in the spirit realm because he knows that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday you are going to go through things that you need to remember the perspective you had on the mountain. Can I hear an amen in the house? This is deliberate training for desperate times. So let me ask you this question. Do you need to ask Jesus to refocus your perspective? Do you need to repent for placing other passions ahead of him, even if they're good? And noble. God's word is This is my son whom I love. With him I'm pleased. Listen to him. And the third and final environment that Peter, James, and John are taken to is pop quiz. Do you know what it is? Oh, the slide just gave it away. Garden of Gethsemane. This is training for preeminent purpose. Not only do we need training for power, and we certainly need training for perspective, we are going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane because this is what I believe. The victory of Calvary was first won in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus at the heart level said, Father, not my will, but your will. Jesus settled in the Garden The fact that he would march to Calvary carrying his cross, wounded, beaten, and do the Father's perfect will. So let's go there in Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. It's an olive grove, and and Gethsemane means olive press. It's where the olives were pressed to get the, extract the oil. And Jesus himself, of course, was pressed in Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, who were obviously James and John. So here we see the three getting special training at a very difficult time. 
And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Aren't you glad that Jesus was in touch with his emotions? The God-man, the perfect God-man, could say to Peter, James, and John, I'm going through a rough time. I feel like an olive in the press. All that is upon me is pressing me, squishing me, flattening me. And I think, Christian friends, it's very appropriate that we say to people around us, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. It's called grief. You know, grief is a very realistic spiritual emotion. When someone dies, when we experience a loss, when we're disappointed, we grieve. And the Bible says we don't grieve as those with no hope. We grieve with people of hope because we know that, that God raises the dead. Amen? Amen? So Jesus, in his very real human emotion, says this to them. Keep watch. Verse 39, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. When I was a teenager, I received some bad teaching. I was in a spirit-filled church, and my well-meaning youth director said, it's a lack of faith when you pray to God and you say, not my will, but your will. Because it gives God an escape, a back door to not answering your prayer. It took me a long time to realize that I was just taught heresy. Because the Apostle Paul prayed it, other godly people have prayed it, and Jesus himself prayed it. Sometimes we face things when we're standing at the threshold of entering into, hear me, a new entrance into purpose. A new place. Since I've been with you last, Apostle Abraham, we have been through some major transitions. And when we were here with you last, we had no idea that we would soon be standing at the threshold of purpose. A, a perspective of God's purpose. And when you're standing at the threshold, the very appropriate prayer to pray is, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Sometimes in our fear and insecurity, we said to the Lord, Lord, I want you to do my will, period. Or we say, we flip the, we flip the prayer over and we say, Lord, not thy will, but my will. And guess what? We can void entering into serving God's purpose. I want to tell you, preeminent purpose is what you must fulfill before you die. 
When we stand around your casket and say the nice words and read scriptures over your dead body, we trust that your soul and spirit is with Jesus in heaven. And we want to be able to say that they served God's purpose for their lives. They did the will of God. As a pastor for many years, I have done many funerals. And I'm sorry to report to you that sometimes I couldn't say that. Some funerals are sad, sadder than others, because you know that that person went astray. At some point, they didn't say, Father, not my will, but your will. They said, Father, my will, and I will fight your will. And that, my friend, is a path to serving your own purpose. So as a young teenager, I had to get that straight, that it wasn't a lack of faith to say, Lord, not my will, but thy will. But actually, it's great faith. Everyone say great faith. Jesus is expressing it here. Then, verse 40, he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping like some of you this morning. Wake up, church. <laughs> Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, and I'm not even going to preach one hour? Couldn't you stay awake? And he asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 42, he went away a second time and prayed, Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he went back and again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time saying the same thing. Jesus prayed three times, Father, not my will, but your will. Three times. You know, sometimes you have to pray more than once. The first time you pray, it's just words falling out of your mouth. The second time you pray, your heart is beginning to believe it. The third time you pray, it enters into your spirit, and from a spiritual place, you bring your offering before the Lord, and you place it before him by faith. And Jesus prayed the same prayer three times while his disciples slept. And he returned and found them. Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So this was an intense moment for Jesus that also became an intimate and deliberate training experience for Peter, James, and John. We see here that Jesus expressing his very human emotions of grief and sorrow, emotional distress, comes and asks them to pray. Why? Because Jesus came to fulfill preeminent purpose. The lamb slain from the foundations of the earth. And the completion of God's will by paying the price for your sin and mine and redeeming mankind back to himself. Praying not my will be done, but your will be done. Do you know that the torrents of grace which you've been studying 
are hinged on Jesus praying that prayer. It was that prayer that released the grace of the new covenant upon your life and mine because following it was the sacrificial lamb, Jesus himself. So there's a battle on for what will be preeminent in the eyes of the church. And our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil regularly offer us many counterfeits. Do you know sin as its basic root is mankind denying God's preeminent purpose? Because what Adam and Eve lost by saying, my will be done. Hey, listen. In the Garden of Eden, mankind said, my will be done. What man lost in a garden, Jesus regained in a different garden. He went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he said the opposite of Adam. And he said the opposite of Eve. He said, not my will be done, but your will be done. And thus he inaugurated the spirit of the new covenant. Friend, I want you to come with, with Peter, James, and John into this specialized training. There were only three of these unique experiences where they were trained for power. They were trained for perspective. They were trained to serve God's purpose. Young people, hear me. Your life is God's very possession. Ask Him for His path, His plan, His purpose. You've got many decisions in front of you. The Lord wants to be intimately involved with each one. Where do I go to school? Where do I go to university? Who do I marry? What do I do with my life? Young people, the Lord is inviting you into serving his purpose. Middle-aged and older people, don't let the cares of this world and the pursuit of security rob you from your passion to serve God's preeminent purpose. And so here's the application slide. Next slide. Jesus will take you to the garden of intense surrender and call you to serve God's eternal purpose with your one and only life. Can we have that slide up, please, if you can find it? I'm going to say this again. Jesus will take you to the garden of intense surrender and call you to serve God's eternal purpose with your one and only life. You know, the greatest compliment that is given to King David from Acts 13, 36, where it says, Now David had served God's purpose in his own generation, and after that he fell asleep and he was buried with his fathers. I've told Becky many times, that's what I want my headstone to read. My epitaph, and I believe there could be no greater thing said about any human being. Here lies Sonny Mazar. He served God's purpose in his generation. Friend, that's the greatest thing. Why? Because we know from the parables of Jesus that when we die and we stand before him and, and we're going to say, well, I don't know. I don't know, Lord, why you're... You're, you're inviting me into your glory. And he says, good and faithful servant, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. 
See, he's going to, he's going to affirm you as a faithful servant, serving the purpose of God in your own generation. Now, it might not look like being a pastor, a preacher, or a missionary. It may not look like singing in the men's choir or the women's choir this Christmas. I don't know what it looks like for you to serve God's purpose, but I'm fully confident that he'll show you. That he will take you to the Garden of Gethsemane and he will say, come with me to a very intimate place of surrender where you lay down your own life and take up my heart. And some of you, intercession and prayer is your ministry. It's your calling. And the Lord has sent me here today to affirm to you that it is no less a calling than someone who goes to the ends of the world as a missionary for you to serve as a prayer intercessor in the body of Christ. So here we see Peter, James, and John. How did it end for them? Well, Peter went from being an impulsive, overconfident, sword-swinging warrior to a spirit-filled preacher. On the day of Pentecost, he was a biblical author and a pillar of the early church. One who denied Christ was now proclaiming him with power. James went from being a self-serving supremacist who wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume the non-believers of Samaria to bring to being a suffering servant. You know what it is that James did that was unique among all 12 disciples? He was the very first of Jesus' disciples to be martyred in Jerusalem, which is, by the way, ultimate relinquishment perspective. And then John went from being one of the young sons of thunder, as Jesus used to call them, to the longest living disciple imprisoned on the island Patmos, authored five books of the Bible, and charged with the care of Jesus' mother Mary. He saw Jesus and received the book of Revelation, after which he, he writes, the Lamb is worthy to open the scroll. And he understood eternal purpose. Friends, as I pray now, I want to ask you to give Jesus your yes. That you would not ring the bell and opt out, but that you would say, yes, Jesus, bring me into these places of unique training. Let's all stand together, and I'd love to pray for you in the house today. Let's all stand. And if you would extend your hands to the Lord like this as we pray, I would like to pray over your life. And I know in a, a room this size with this many people, there are many situations and many stories, many needs, many experiences. And I'm going to pray God's abundant grace be upon you. Amen. Lord, as we enter into specific training, deliberate training for desperate times, we ask that you would take us as you did Peter, James, and John and give us your unique training. And Lord, we know that all of these trainings will bring a specific grace to our lives. 
And so we would ask that that grace would be apparent in us and through us. Make us those special forces, those elite uh, trained servants of the Most High as we serve not our purpose on earth, but your eternal purpose. And it's in Christ's name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to God's Word. We are the Apostolic Church All Nation Center in Kennington, London. Find us at Tyus Terrace, Kennington, London, SE11 5LY. Our telephone number is 0207 820 On the web, we are at www.apostolic-anc.org. All Nation Center, reaching out to you in practical and caring ways.